Hello and welcome to Paleo Cinema Podcast 225. My name is Terry Frost and this time around I'm doing two different things. The first one is I'm going to look at a film noirish kind of film, a Fritz Lang movie that I hadn't seen before from 1943 called Hangmen Also Die, which stars Brian Donlevy and Walter Brennan. And then I'm going to do the top 10 movies that I watched for the first time in 2017. I'm going to tie off the year a little bit differently and just have a bit of a chat about the movies I liked over the last 12 months, regardless of genre and regardless of how recent they are. So sit back, I'm going to get the contact details out of the way, and this podcast will commence. So how has everybody been? Uh, I did the Star Wars podcast, I only just released that onto this particular podcast stream so you may well have uh, listened to that one uh the people who were patreon subscribers got it a week before everybody else but that's okay everybody got it in the end particularly me so uh not much been happening over the last week we've kind of been low-keying at this time around as the holiday season leaps out of the jungle and grabs us all by the throat uh we have had something unusual around here we're kind of on a semi-main road, uh, just off a semi-main road, our house. And the main road is about a kilometre or less from the biggest shopping centre for 10 or 15 kilometres around. So with all of the kerfuffle over the holiday season, the traffic around my area is fucking horrible at the moment. Tons and tons of cars all the way down everywhere I go. On the way to the gym, I had to come back by taking about a four-kilometre detour, more more than four-kilometre, it might have been about eight-kilometre detour to get back from the gymnasium because traffic was bumper-to-bumper heading the way from the gymnasium back to the house. So it's all fucked up, and I'm basically going to hunker down for the next two days until the reindeer shit hits the roof and try not to go out at times when other people are going out because it's not going to end well. Uh, it's worse than it used to be because I live in an area where there's a lot of fast expansion of housing and a population and the infrastructure just isn't holding up very well to the onslaught of the holiday season. So um, having said that, uh, if I'm a little frazzled and frayed, it's because I've been trying to drive around and, and do things before we head over to the Outlaws place on the 25th to have a roast lunch. The other thing I've been doing is I got a Google Home Mini, which is kind of cool. I like them. Uh, It's quite useful for me. And I'm going to give you an example now of what the Google Home Mini does. Uh, Just give me a few seconds to think of something to ask it that's going to be podcast friendly. Hey, Google, do you like podcasts? Hey, Google, what's your favorite old movie? I liked Close Encounters of the Third Kind because I like discovering strange new things and colourful blinking lights. So you can get to do things like that, or you can go like this. Hey, Google, say hello to my little friend. But I don't want to play rough. Or you can even go with classic comedy. Hey, Google, surely you can't be serious. I am serious, and don't call me Shirley. So it's kind of cool having a digital assistant, and I really enjoy it. Uh, First thing in the morning, if I say good morning to it, it'll... um, tell me the time it'll tell me what the weather's going to be and it will uh, play an abc radio news bulletin for me so that's kind of cool if i'm just making the coffee and i haven't turned the tv on yet i can kind of get an update while i'm messing around in the kitchen which is kind of cool i I like that and the things are only 55 dollars, so i got one for myself i got one for sally as well and uh, we've been messing around with them for the past few days because it's the 21st century and you just got to get on board otherwise you're going to get run over by the zeitgeist so that's one thing that we've been doing uh, the other thing i've been doing is surprisingly enough watching movies uh let's see what i watch i watched one of the dc animations which i picked up very very cheaply at the last remaining video store in my area uh green lantern first flight which is kind of the origin story for hal jordan's green lantern and it's not too bad at all. Uh, Christopher Maloney does the voice of um, Hal Jordan slash the Green Lantern. They've got some really cool older actors doing a bit of voice acting in there as well. They've got Malachi Throne, who was in 
It Takes a Thief with Robert Wagner back in the 60s. You get William Shallot doing the voice of one of the um, Guardians on Oa. And uh, let's see who else have we got there. Livia Darbo, uh, John Larroquette, Kurt Wood Smith, and Michael Madsen doing the voice of Kilowog. So it's a pretty good voice acting um, ensemble with that one. I, I kind of enjoyed it. I like a lot of the DC animations a lot better than I like the DC live action big tentpole films. So I watched that, uh, which was kind of fun. I did watch Anaconda because it came up on Netflix, which is uh, 20 years old. I could do it for Paleo Cinema, believe it or not now, with Jennifer Lopez, John Voight. Uh, it also has Ice Cube in it, and there's a really great bit right at the start uh, where you the kind of stakes of these snakes is really laid out for you because you get uh, Danny Trejo, about to get killed by a snake and shooting his own brains out rather than getting swallowed by a giant snake right at the start of the fucking movie. So any monster that scares the fuck out of Danny Trejo is something to take note of. Uh, And it held up kind of well. It's very much a B-motion picture and some of the CG doesn't hold up as well as more modern stuff would for fairly obvious reasons. It's 20 years old. But it's got a certain tongue-in-cheek mode about it uh, and John Voight overacting nicely as the kind of villainous character. So, yeah, it kind of worked for me. Uh, then I checked out a Luc Besson movie that I hadn't seen before. It came up on SBS On Demand, which is our uh, national ethnic broadcaster, which has some really great movies available for streaming at no cost to the public. And it's um, Angel A, which is a kind of little, sweet, black-and-white Besson movie from about 2005. It's a story of a kind of lovable loser character who's a a little bit of a minor criminal who's about to jump off a bridge and commit suicide where he sees a girl about to do the same thing. And they both jump into the river and he saves her and it turns out that she's actually an angel uh, who's sent back to Earth to try to get him to get his shit together. It's whimsical and, and silly, and it kind of works. Uh, I really did like it. And also, it does have a lot of violence in it, which is always a nice thing in a Luc Besson movie. But it's slightly, th- um, in theme and tempo, a little quieter than his other stuff. But I kind of enjoyed it. I may well try to get a copy of this rather than just have it on streaming as well, because um, it, it was worth, worth it. And I do have a fondness for Luc Besson movies, even when they're not entirely successful. So the only other thing I've really watched of note was a Netflix movie that just came out called Bright with Will Smith and Joel Edgerton. It's kind of like, people say it's a copy of Shadowrun, the um, game and and book series, where you've got a modern modern world which has got elves and orcs and um, humans living together. There are also fairies which are a bit of a menace to bird feeders. And we also see a few centaurs as well, which is kind of cool. So, um, yeah, I kind of liked it. I think it worked okay. It um, doesn't really go anywhere where people who are familiar with urban fantasy as a genre haven't been before. But it does show you a really interesting kind of alternate universe. And I liked it. I think that there should be a sequel. And if Netflix is making movies like this and pumping them out, then... Uh, more mainstream and more traditional movie studios, particularly when it comes to the entertainment side of things rather than the big blockbusters or the art housey kind of things, is going to definitely watch its back uh, because the up-and-comers like Netflix and Hulu and Amazon and all of those guys are really starting to get their shit together with it. And I enjoyed it. It was fun. Uh, that, of course, brings me to the fact that um, Fox Studios is being sold to Disney and Disney's basically going to own everything in old media at some stage with the exceptions of the little bits of fox that Rupert Murdoch retained being fox sport and fox news because who would fucking want them anyway um yeah so there's a lot of things changing in the media landscape and i think that a movie like bright is even though it's not a, you know i'd say it's like 75% there it's still uh, something that people look forward to watching and because it's just so accessible you just have to flip around on your Xbox 
or on whichever kind of digital platform you've got attached to your TV or your smart TV itself. Just go to Netflix and watch it uh, as a new release movie. I watched it within an hour of it being released here in Australia on the 22nd, which goes to show you that there is a lot to be said for those instant delivery systems where people who, who now have fantastic technologies in their homes to watch movies can access it and just um, see a new release film you know, less than 60 minutes after it's released, which is kind of cool. And because I have had so many birthdays and I remember how things used to be, it's still just that little bit miraculous for me. So anyway, I'm going to take a break now. When I get back, I'm going to talk about Hangman Also Die, a really interesting uh, Fritz Lang movie from the middle of World War II, which tells the story of the Czech resistance against the Nazis that was, at the time, happening in all but real time. I, I also started a letter to Beta. <laughs> I was sure it would not pass. I'll tell it to you, Marsha, and you'll repeat it to him. What I now want to say to you, my son, is meant for when you're a grown man. The now mighty invaders will have been thrown out of our land for quite some time. What some time? I hope you will be living in a free land where the people are truly governed by themselves and for themselves. Those will be great days to live. Those will be great days to live. In a land where all the men and women and children will have enough good food to eat, and time to read and to think and to talk things over with one another for their own good. When such great days do come, don't forget that freedom is not something one possesses, like a hat or a piece of candy. The real thing is fighting for freedom. And you might remember me, not because I've been your father, but because I also died in this great fight. Because I also died in this great fight. So Die is a 1943 movie directed by Fritz Lang, starring Brian Don Levy, Walter Brennan and Anna Lee. There's no use having technology unless you use it. Um, yeah, she was right. Uh, Hangman Also Die is a movie directed by Fritz Lang and starring Brian Don Levy, Walter Brennan and Anna Lee. It's a really interesting story for about 15 different reasons. And I'll try to get through as many of them as I can. It's a 1943 noir war film directed by Lang. Written by John Wexley from a story by somebody you might have heard of called Bertolt Brecht. He was credited as Bert Brecht in the movie and also Fritz Lang. So Bertolt Brecht, the guy we know from so many things like Mother Courage, the Thrippany Opera, um, his Galileo, any number of works of art, um, plays and musicals. Uh, he was the master of Weimar Germany as far as um, theatre is concerned. And this is his only Hollywood credit, which is kind of amazing. But on the other hand, the movie itself is pretty amazing too. It was made in Hollywood, and I'll read you the whole plot synopsis as we have it in IMDb, because I think it's kind of important to get our head around that, and then I'm going to tell you why it was done so wonderfully and the things I love about the film. Wikipedia says, During the Nazi occupation of Czechoslovakia, Surgeon Dr. Frantisek Svoboda, played by Brian Donnelly, a Czech patriot, assassinates the brutal hangman of Europe, Reich's protector Reinhard Heinrich. But his getaway car is discovered and therefore his planned safe house must reject him. When a woman he doesn't know, named Marsha, played by Anna Lee, deliberately misdirects German soldiers close to finding him, he seeks her home as an alternative safe house. 
This turns out to be the home of her father, history professor Stephen Novotny, Walter Brennan, whom the Nazis have banned from teaching. This plan works, but because the assassin now can't be found, the Nazi leaders in Prague decide to create an incentive for him to turn himself in or for others to do so. They arrange, with the help of a fifth columnist, Emil Zaka, played by Jean Lockhart, a wealthy brewer, brewer, for 400 citizens, including Novotny, to be executed 40 at a time until the assassin is named. Through a complex series of events, however, the resistance manages to frame Zucker himself for the murder, but not before the Nazis have executed many of the hostages. So this movie came out, uh, let's see, I'll just get the dates on this because I, I find it quite interesting. The movie came out in March 1943. The assassination of Reinhard Heinrich took place less than a year before, in May 1942, so 10 months before the movie was in cinemas. The events that inspired the movie were actually occurring. So I'll go back to Reinhard Heinrich, who was the second head of the SS. He was responsible for consolidating all the German police forces into the Gestapo and into the machine they were for killing people. He was responsible partly for the Holocaust. He was the worst of the worst. Uh, so on the 27th of May 1942, a couple of Czech patriots who'd been trained by the British and dropped in, this is in real world, not in the movie, waited for Heinrich's convertible to go around a slow corner. Uh, they had a Sten gun and some other gear. So they tried to shoot him with the Sten gun, but the Sten gun jammed and they weren't able to shoot, shoot him. So they did have a bomber, converted anti-tank mine, and a guy called Kubish, who was one of the two um, assassins, threw the bomb at the rear of um, Heinrich's Mercedes-Benz 320 convertible, and it exploded. So it wounded both Kubish himself and Heinrich. Now, Heinrich um, was wounded, but died about... A week later of his injuries. The reason he died of his injuries were there was shrapnel that went through. Um, he had to get a splenectomy because his spleen was ruined. His lung collapsed. He had a, a broken rib. But the stuffing in the upholstery on a Mercedes-Benz 320 convertible was horsehair. And there was a lot of horsehair propelled into Heinrich's wounds. And even though they did try to use some early antibiotics on him, the infection just went mad and killed him which is a good thing. I'm in favour of horsehair repulsory. So that's what happened in the real world. But you've got to remember that Fritz Lang and Bert Brecht were riding in Hollywood and people didn't know the facts of Heinrich's assassination, apart from the fact that it was done by Czech patriots, until years later. So they created, from the fact that um, patriotic Czechs assassinated Ronald Heinrich, and that there was a massive and brutal retaliation for that. They turned it into a thriller, a suspense thriller, and a film noir as well, and of course a piece of propaganda for the war effort. And so there was a great ensemble cast in this one, I really like it. I'm not really a fan of Brian Donlevy as a rule, but in the ensemble he really works. The standout guy for me, and, and the most valuable player, is Walter Brennan playing Stephen Novotny. Now Walter Brennan, as I've said before in the podcast, was an actor who had two types of acting and was open about this. When he got a role, he would ask them whether it was teeth in or teeth out. So was he playing a yokel or was he playing an educated man? Because he himself, Walter Brennan, was an educated man. He was, in a, he was a bank clerk before World War I, served as a private in World War I in the 101st Field Artillery Regiment. He then, after the war, he moved to Guatemala and grew pineapples and then came back to the U.S. and settled in L.A. And in the 1920s, he made a fortune in the real estate market but lost most of it during a 1925 real estate slump. He'd already done a little bit of acting and uh, went on to do very much more until he died finally in at the age of 80 in 1974. So Brennan was a man of letters and knew what he was doing and his Novotny is very interesting. As you can hear, there's a precision to his enunciation in that little clip that I played earlier. And he wasn't as portly as he was in later years when we remember him from things like Rio Bravo and the real McCoys and all the other things he did later in his career. 
He um, played very effectively a man of letters, an educated man and a moral man, and a man whose compass was pointing towards north at all times. And his character Novotny, in some senses, even though he is a victim of the assassination and uh, because he chooses to be compassionate and help a man in need, pays the ultimate price for that. But there are also some other fantastic actors in this one. The guy playing Reynard Heinrich himself, who we see at the start of the film, is a really interesting guy called Hans Heinrich von Twardowski, who was in uh, the original cabinet of Dr. Caligari with Conrad Veet and Werner Krauss and Lily de Gover and all of those guys. He left Germany in 1933 to escape the Nazi regime because he was gay. He made a number of movies, uh, died at the age of 60 in 1958. After uh, the war, the kind of roles he was playing, which ironically were Nazis, were kind of falling off. Uh, But he did do a lot of stage work right up until his death in the late 1950s. So uh, he he did have a a great career, but because of the look of him, he did specialise during the war years in particular in playing Nazi roles, which is one of those ironies. Again, the same thing with Conrad Veidt. Uh, some of the people who fled the Nazis and who were oppressed and threatened by them went on to portray them in movies, which is a horrible kind of irony, but it, it kept them uh, alive, I suppose, and gave them a career in, and made them memorable. And um, I'm trying to pronounce the guy's name, Twarowski, Twardowski. Um, really does give you some of that nasty banality of evil stuff that uh, we need to understand why it was important for Heinrich to die. We see him at the start of the film, but uh, he's a kind of cast a long shadow over the movie as well. So we've got Annalie playing Masha Novotny, the daughter of um, Walter Brennan's character as well, who, uh, let's see, she died in 1991, 2004. She was actually... Um, English, but played um, mostly in American cinema. Uh, she was in How Green Is My Valley and Two Road Together in Fort Apache with John Ford and a number of other films. But uh, in this one, playing the daughter, she she does it quite well. Uh, she's not committed to the um, resistance against the Nazis at the start, but comes around to that as time goes on and as events go on. And as all of her family are threatened by the monstrous bureaucratic machine of Nazism, which this movie portrays as well as any movie of its time, the the kind of the fact that they had files on everybody, the uh, taking over of a bank building in Prague so that the uh, safety deposit areas in the vaults at the bottom of the bank were where the Nazis tortured their victims. Uh, It's just got... A lot of little detail in it that uh, Brecht and Lang put in there based on the experience of people who were there and whatever information they could smuggle out of um, Nazi-occupied Europe at the time. The other outstanding person in this one is an actor called Alexander Granak, who was a popular German actor in the 20s and 30s and was also, who played the kind of Renfield character in Nosferatu in 1922. But in this one, he plays a police inspector, um, Alwas Gruber, who's kind of fat and has imperial moustache and um, is corrupt and nasty and, of course, being a Germany's nasty, and who is perpetually drinking beer. Oddly enough, it's all Sucker's Breweries beer, so you get this product placement for a fictional brewing company all the way through this film. And his character is interesting because he's um, corrupt and lazy, but also very effective. He's got a detective's mind. He's like an evil, fat Columbo. And um, Granak, even though he does seem to be a humorous character at times, we keep seeing him do things and, and act in certain ways that show us the kind of person he actually is. I mean, he's very much a Brechtian character. He's got uh, a bowler hat and he, he's fat and lazy and, and nasty, but very effective. And 
when Grenau is on the screen, he's mesmerizing. Um, there's, he plays other people a lot until, of course, he gets played himself. And there's a beautiful standoff towards the end of the film with him and two other men, which I'm not going to spoil for you because I really want you to see this film, which really does work well and um, sets up the framing of the brewer, Saka, for the murder of Reinhard Heinrich. Of course, in real life, that didn't happen because one of Heinrich's assassins was wounded during the assassination. So, but... People, of course, didn't know that, so they made up this wonderful story. Now, the movie runs 134 minutes, but having said that, it really doesn't outstay its welcome because there's a lot of tension in it, a lot of suspense, and it's really interesting how complex the setup is for Shaka and how we learn about the culture of kind of pre-war Czechoslovakia and the Czech patriots and how people of learning in particular are cut off from their sources of income and from the things they're passionate about by fascist regimes. There are a lot of horrible parallels that we can draw to modern politics, which, bad as it is, is still, you know, a minnow compared to the whale of Nazism but uh, this movie really does have some nice twists and turns you think it's going to be about Brian Donlevy's character because he's the name actor in it but he's in a sense after a certain point a very much a secondary character the first you know the kind of prominent character then becomes Marshab Novotny played by Anna Lee and then her father Walter Bren's character we get Marsha's uh, fiance Jan Horak, played by Dennis O'Keefe, and he carries the weight for a little bit. So, in a sense, it's not really a star term, but it's really an ensemble movie in the best possible way, and in a way that may well have been confusing for audiences at the time because they were expecting, if you see Brian Donlevy in a movie, he's going to be the star, and there's going to be a clear through line of his um, character and him being heroic and and prevailing and and everything being well in the end. But the movie doesn't play out like that. Uh, Good people die in this movie. And we don't find out about a couple of people. And um, the assassin, uh, Dr. Svoboda, played by Brian Donlevy, isn't really um, necessarily a good man. He does what he needs to do to help his country and the murder of Reinhard Heinrich definitely helped the war effort and had showed the Czechoslovakian people to fight back. But he has to have a certain twisting of his moral compass in order to see the bigger picture in a sense. Uh, It can't just be about him and what he wants and what other people want it's about saving a nation and to do that sometimes horrible things have to be said and horrible things have to be done and important things have to be left unsaid which is really um, a morally complex scenario particularly for a movie of this time when Hollywood in particular because of the production code and, and all of the other nastinesses that implied created a dumbing down effect on moral complexity of character and this movie embraces it it really does have it I don't even know how it got made in Hollywood even though it um, wasn't a big film by any means and the budget wasn't enormous Um, it was distributed by United Artists and produced by Lang and Arnold Pressburger and made by Pressburger's film company as well uh, but it was distributed by United Artists, and um, it really is surprising at um, the twists and turns it takes, and the fact that it does embrace that moral complexity, which I found really surprising and, and really interesting. One of the other interesting things about the film is that Hangman Also Die wasn't the original title, though that direct reference to the nickname of Heinrich as it was known to the Czech people and people in the general area around Czechoslovakia as well, 
was a deliberate jab at the Nazis by the filmmakers. Originally, the working titles were Never Surrender, No Surrender, Unconquered, We Killed Hitler's Hangman, and Trust the People. Um, Also, it was going to be known as Lest We Forget. And one of the other great ironies of this film was that the world premiere was in Prague, Oklahoma, on the 27th of March, 1943, an event which featured Adolf Hitler, Hirohito and Mussolini being hanged in effigy on the main street. Uh, it was then opened nationwide in the first days of April, beginning with 20 key cities. So that's really kind of uh, interesting that it's the only movie premiere I know which also had hangings in effigy as a part of its premiere, which shows the kind of passion that uh, was elicited by those particular three. Needless to say, a lot of the people who made this movie, including Lionel Stander, who plays a cab driver in it, and the co-writer John Wexley, were blacklisted by the House Un-American Activities Committee years later for being communists. And to be honest with you, there is a certain kind of socialist tilt to this movie in some ways, because it's saying that the people will rise up against dictators and that power... is essentially over time comes from the grassroots and comes from the ordinary people who bond together in times of adversity and overthrow um, tyrants which is not something that uh, a right-wing kind of person is necessarily going to embrace as a philosophy the other cool thing about this film is it has some beautiful black and white cinematography by James Wong Howe who had such a fantastically long career as uh, a cinematographer. He worked with frequently with people like Samuel Fuller, Howard Hawks, um, David O. Selznick, Raoul Walsh. And I looked over the filmography of James Wong Howe, and it's mind-blowingly good. Uh, Prisoner of Zender in 1937, The Adventures of Tom Sawyer, Algiers in 1938. He also worked on... Fantasia uncredited. Uh, let's see what else we've got. King's Row, Yankee Doodle Dandy, Confidential Agent, The Baron of Arizona, the Samuel Fuller movie from 1950, Picnic, Bell Book and Candle, HUD, Seconds, Ombre, The Heart is a Lonely Hunter, The Molly Maguire's, and his last film uh, was Funny Lady. So he went all the way from 1923 to 1975 as a cinematographer which is kind of an impressive lot of movies and his deep black and white photography some of it a little bit influenced by Fritz Lang's M in some scenes uh, in the backlot Prague that they created really you know, evokes uh, time and a place even though you could tell that the, even the street sets were quite limited and the budgets weren't enormous. And the use of shadow, particularly as a way of foreshadowing menace, is really, really effective in this film. It does draw attention to itself a little bit, but rightly so in the scenes where it appears, particularly down in the vaults underneath the building that is Gestapo headquarters in Prague. So this movie is one of those films, and I've talked about a number of other films that were made about the war during the war and about events of the war during the war, and there's an energy and a passion and an urgency and, of course, a a propaganda um, push in these kinds of movies to uh, keep the public not really enthusiastic but engaged with the war and to explain in the format of an entertainment why people's loved ones are fighting overseas and why there is rationing at home and shortages at home and that everybody has to pull toward the common goal all of that is in this film plus the fact that people bind together to get rid of spies It's, it's not any kind of authority that gets rid of the spies it's a network of Czech patriots working together who bring down a wealthy um, businessman, which again is probably a theme that uh, right-wing people aren't necessarily going to embrace in a piece of cinema. Nonetheless, it's um, a really powerful piece of filmmaking that works in spite of the kind of meagre talents of people like Brian Donlevy. And because of the 
surprising range of Walter Brennan, for instance, as an actor. Really, um, this, this movie should be better known than it is. Uh, I picked up a cheap copy of it. Uh, the Patreon money, in fact, paid for it. I got three Fritz Lang movies because I did a um, search on eBay for Fritz Lang and they came up and there were three movies that I hadn't seen of Fritz Lang's that I'm looking forward to seeing the other two. And this one I took a punt on. And that gamble very much paid off. The other two movies of Fritz Lang's that I picked up, again, reasonably cheaply, were uh, the two Indian movies that he made in the late 1950s, The Indian Tomb and also The Tiger of Eshnapur. So those I have uh, on DVD now, and I'm looking forward to watching them. I got them both as a kind of box set of the two. So I've seen a little bit of one of them, where Deborah Padgett does an erotic dance with a snake, but I really wanted to see um, the Fritz Lang's Indian epic because I'd heard about it, I'd seen little clips of it, but I really hadn't seen it at all. That one, by the way, was made before the um, Thousand Eyes of Dr. Mabusa in 1960, which is another movie I've got to re-watch at some stage because I really do like it. But just to kind of wrap up, on Hangman Also Die. It's worth seeing. It's um, a, a kind of version of history based on the information that they had at the time. And it's, I mean, you're going to see it. If you're at all interested in Bertolt Brecht, you're going to see the only Hollywood movie he ever wrote a script for, a full script for. And the fact that it is so good and that it's directed by Fritz Lang and it has all these fantastic actors on it. And it, it just works on a small budget because of the cleverness of the plotting and the way that even though it's didactic it's suspenseful and tightly written and tightly acted and tightly directed and immensely entertaining as well um, it's all credit to everybody involved uh, it really is this is one of the reasons why I really love um, finding obscure films because, yeah, sometimes you'll, they're a piece of shit or they're just kind of piss poor and ordinary, but sometimes you find something wonderful. It's a bit like being a pearl diver. Most of the time you just come up with oysters, but occasionally you find something beautiful. And this kind of movie and the, this kind of discovery of this film, for me, is definitely that it's worth wading through some kind of not particularly wonderful films that you've heard about but haven't seen to get to something like Hangman Also Die which is really surprising suspenseful and quite poignant in places time for another break and then I'm going to talk about my top 10 movies that I saw for the first time in 2017 My shadow everywhere From the east to the west Take a ride with me, be my guest Can you wait, can you stay Until the cat comes out to play I'll be in seven places a time You're watching me leave As I arrive Through the night, through the day You can see me making my way Up to the sky and to the deep For the sun, for the moon From midnight into the noon I will wait, I will stay Until the cat comes out to play
Okay, so the top 10 movies I saw for the first time in 2017. By the way, that was Tom Gable with The Cat. Tom Gable's my favourite German Sinatra stylist. He really um, does a kind of Sinatra swing kind of vibe in 21st century Germany. And it's very cool stuff. Uh, Maybe Armin knows him. Who knows? But uh, anyway... On to the list. Now, these are not in any particular order, and I'll just talk a bit about them. I have talked more about some of the movies in the podcast, but this is just kind of a checklist kind of thing. One. Okay, the first one's a 2017, sorry, 2016 movie. It was released in December 2016, and it's Hidden Figures, based on the novel by Theodore Melfi about a group of uh, human computers, in a sense, a a group of... um, black women in 1950s and 1960s America uh, working for NASA doing a lot of the calculations and how they were treated and how they came into their own strength over time for being the best of the best. It's one of those things that reminds us that people who are for social reasons underprivileged have to try five times as hard to get to the same place whether it's women, whether it's women of colour, whether it's people of colour, whether it's gay, lesbian, transgendered, intersex, bi or queer people, doesn't matter if people are underdogs. It can even be sociological. If people are underdogs, they have to be that much better to get anywhere. And this combines that kind of a struggle with something I think is really cool, which is space science and the history of NASA and the history of how they got people to the moon in 1960s technology and why they haven't been able to do it since. So it's, it's a kind of really a feel-good film in some ways. Taraji P. Henson, Octavia Spencer, Janelle Monáe, Kevin Costa, Kirsten Dunst, Jim Parsons, Mahershala Ali. Uh, it's just the best, and I didn't find one anachronism in the movie at all. There probably are some, because inevitably a movie about times past do have anachronisms in it, but it felt right to me. And I really like it. And I like the fact that it made $235 million worldwide. I think the more a story like this is successful, the more we're going to see and learn about stories like this in the future. So that one, if you haven't seen it, is recommended. We just got a copy of it on Blu-ray because Sally hasn't seen it. Uh, I reviewed it for the radio. And it really is um, an impressive piece of cinema. Two second movie I'm going to talk about is a franchise film, the 10th installment of the X-Men film series, would you believe? And it's Logan, which takes the plot from the comics of Old Man Logan and twists it around and uh, really does give a kind of send-off to the character of Wolverine in the um, 20th Century Fox um, Logan franchise, in a sense, the X-Men franchise. You've Patrick Stewart playing an old and um, infirmed Charles Xavier. You've got Richard E. Grant in there, Stephen Merchant, Elizabeth Rodriguez. And it really does work. Uh, I know people who are a lot fonder of it than I am, and a lot of people, there are a few people who really um, don't like the fact that Logan died at the end of it, for instance. It's But it really does kind of work and it gives us a a near future that's kind of gritty and dystopian in in some ways but definitely has a lived-in kind of look to it which is really um a lot more than they should have done they they take what was for the most part a kind of fun but facile um franchise 
and give it a fair bit of gravitas at the end. It really does work. And, uh, yeah, uh, superhero movies, as uh, one of our conservative political parties tends to say here in Australia, is a broad church. And there are any number of stories you can tell in that format. And movies like this and like Deadpool and all of the ways that the kind of superhero genre has balkanized and given us stories way outside the box of a comic book uh, really is one of those things that, that shows us that graphic novels and, and the superhero genre is uh, of literary merit and, and of cinematic merit as well. And that's kind of cool, and I really do appreciate that. I don't think it's a perfect film by any means, but I definitely enjoyed it, and I think it worked. It, it did what it needed to do. It gave a, a good ending to Hugh Jackman's long career as Wolverine, and I think it's um, in that way. And it's also a good action film too, which is one of the other things. If it had just been the kind of heavy end of an era kind of stuff, that would have been one thing, but it definitely gives us the action and gives us um, some hope for the future of that particular universe, which is a little bit rare. So that's the second one of the films. Three. The third one is a documentary, an American documentary called Five Came Back from 2016-17, uh, based on the novel Five Came Back, a story of Hollywood and the Second World War by a guy called Mark Harris. Yeah, it was uh, released on Netflix on March 31st. And it's a documentary series that focuses on five movie directors, John Ford, William Wyler, John Huston, Frank Capra, and George Stevens, who went to document World War II and how it affected their careers before and since and the work that they did during the time. And it's amazing um, how these guys got through it for a start, but also um, the effect that the war had on them and how it increase their art and also let them tell stories that couldn't be told within the format of a movie studio and with the restrictions of that it's one of those movies one of those documentaries that shocks and awes you but also reminds you why you love cinema and how these people um, really did go to hill in order to document it and brought it back. Four. Next one is a movie that I should have seen years ago, but didn't. And I mentioned it on the podcast. In fact, I've done a podcast about it, but I'm going to iterate that here. And it's a 1950 film noir called The Asphalt Jungle, directed by John Huston, who, of course, was a part of Five Came Back. Sorry, I dropped that piece of hue and pine on the table. Um, yeah, it's got a terrific cast. Sterling Hayden, Louis Calhoun, Gene Hagen, James Whitmore, Sam Jaffe, John McIntyre and Marilyn Monroe. And it really does have a, a gritty, and dare I use a, the kind of dreaded word, authentic feel about it. I like the characters in it, even though there's not one of them that you'd let hold your wallet while you went swimming. And it's a, a good action thriller, and it has a very elegiac kind of end to it, which I, I liked as well. Uh, a lot of film noirs and on a nasty note but this one didn't and uh dicks hanley the character played by sterling hayden the backstory and the rationale for where he ends up and why is quite important to the movie as well and i kind of like that i like the fact that um the bad guys aren't just bad for the sake of being bad there are reasons and they're sociological and, and historic reasons why they are who and where they are and also, you know, the Marilyn Monroe in a very early role is really good. And the, just the ensemble works tremendously well. And Sam Jaffe in particular as um, the professor, it, it, it just all comes together. It's, it's become one of my favourite film noirs. And I really probably am going to watch it again in 2018 just to refresh myself on it. Because with a good film noir, I always like to watch it a couple of times because there's always something you miss the first time around. So that's the next one. Five. Okay, the fifth movie I've got is The Cabin in the Woods. I've talked about it on the Martian Drive-In podcast. 2012 American horror comedy 
directed by Drew Goddard and produced by Joss Whedon, written by Whedon and Goddard. Uh, it's got Chris Hemsworth in it, uh, Richard Jenkins, Bradley Whitford, and uh, a bunch of other actors. And it's one of those movies that has a beautiful sense of escalation. You think it's one thing, then it turns out to be another, then it turns out to be something else again. Then it turns out to be something truly universe-changing. It's a great little movie. I love when the monsters are released in it, and it really does... um, you know, it really does surprise me when it, it surprised me when I saw it, and that's not a bad thing at all. Uh, I really do like movies that veer left, right, and then go off into the twilight zone, and this one definitely does that. It's um, it's a lot of fun, and is probably a, a go-to Halloween movie, which I've really got to share. I just remembered I've got to share this one with my friends Jamie and Sarah who. A crazy monster movie buff. So if they haven't seen it already, I'll definitely have to take over my copy of Cabin in the Woods and they'll feed me in. Uh, Jamie just got a 70-inch television. So, yeah, it's definitely something that I might have to do if they haven't checked it out. But uh, a good, honest monster movie with no pretensions, very much set B-movie level and is a lot of fun. I, I really did kicked myself when I was watching this, so all strength to that. Six. Six one's a movie from 2009. I talked about it briefly on the last podcast I did, uh, Last Martian, and it's Johnny Toe's Hong Kong action film Vengeance from 2009, starring Johnny Halliday. This one's got the best plot imaginable for this kind of an action film, and it also delivers the goods as far as the action is concerned. It's the story of um, a character called uh, Francois Costello, played by Johnny Halliday, the French Elvis. And he um, comes to Hong Kong because his daughter's been grievously wounded um, in a hit, his son-in-law's been killed, and his grandchildren are being killed in the hit. So Francois, who's a chef in Paris and owns a, a quite an expensive restaurant there, comes to Hong Kong to see what he can do about finding the people who destroyed his family. Uh, there are a couple of complications, one of which is he's a retired assassin, and the other one is because of an acquired brain injury, he is progressively suffering from dementia. Now, he meets up with three hitmen who he hires to help him find the men who killed um, most of his family and grievously wounded his daughter. Uh, this movie really does um, take us in unexpected directions. And there's a slow reveal about the condition that the character has, but that's in a lot of the promotional material for us, so it's not too much of a spoiler. Uh, This is a a classic Johnny Toe action flick, and it really does... um, It ends unexpectedly. The the comeuppance and the um, upshot at the end of it is unexpected, but there are also some really, really cool scenes of suspense and of ultra-violence in this one, and some um, gunfights that you have to see to believe. They really do um, surprise us in wonderful and cool ways. This one was recommended to me by my good friend uh, Grant Watson, who's a big Johnny Toe fan, and I immediately went on eBay and picked up a copy of it, not too expensively, and I don't regret that because it really does... Um, pay its way. Seven. This one is a fairly obvious one because it's a Marvel movie, and that's Spider-Man Homecoming from 2017. I went to it not expecting to really enjoy it because I haven't been a big fan of the Spider-Man movies, but given that Marvel had um, the lock in to rolling Spider-Man into the Marvel Cinematic Universe, I thought I'd give it a go, and it does work really well. I really like Marissa Tomei playing Aunt May. I think Michael Keaton playing the bad guy is fantastic. There's a scene in the car between him and Tom Holland playing Peter Parker that really rocks. There are some really fine superhero-level action scenes, and yet it's still a coming-of-age teenage movie, which is quite an accomplishment. It really does um, hit all of the buttons quite well. And I'm looking forward to a second Spider-Man movie, should that eventuate. But uh, there are so many up-and-coming Marvel movies, I don't think I'm going to miss out, even if they don't do one for a while. 
because next year we've got things like Black Panther coming out, Avengers Infinity War, um, Ant-Man and Wasp, and then in 2019 we get uh, Captain Marvel, another Avengers film, and that sequel to Spider-Man Homecoming. Uh, I, I was pleasantly surprised, and I really like it when I'm pleasantly surprised by a movie. And I think Tom Holland's the right age and plays Peter Parker really well in this one. And it it's, um, it's definitely feels like a coming-of-age film along with a, being a Marvel movie and having a kind of teenage-focused movie in the Marvel Cinematic Universe really works, diversifying the kind of movies they make by the setting, the protagonists, and the way the characters act and are psychologically is one of those things that's going to give longevity to that particular franchise and to that enormous mosaic they're making as um, a cinematic universe, which, again, as I've said a number of times, hasn't really been tried before, but even if they fuck up some of the time, they do seem to know what they're doing. And particularly with Black Panther, I'm looking forward to the next bits of that particular franchise eight the next one's also a superhero movie but from the other side of the fence and it is patty jenkins wonder woman uh gal gadot's fantastic as, a, as the main character chris pine's good as steve trevor uh the amazons are fantastic and are portrayed really well unlike they were in justice league and the action really does flow from uh, the characters and from the situations. The um, No Man's Land scene is one of the two to force moments of superhero cinema. And I'm looking forward to another Patty Jenkins-directed Wonder Woman movie as well. It really is um, a circuit breaker for DC in a sense. And hopefully they will um, learn the lessons of this particular movie. And there can be lessons learned in-house without looking at the other guys. And I think that this is lightning in a bottle and really um, does give full value. And also, it's a time when we have the Me Too campaign, when we have women finding their own strength. And this movie is part of that zeitgeist. And it's amazingly um, fun, too. There's a lot of fun in it. There's a lot of jokes in it. But ultimately, in spite of the boss battle at the end, which leaves things a little bit lame, for the most part, the movie works really well and the ensemble works well and it shows us things like Themyscira which aren't in any Marvel movie and it shows it in a totally different way with a totally different aesthetic and also the, the fact that it was written, it was directed at least, sorry, by a woman does give it, let it avoid a lot of perils that may have happened had that not been the case. So Wonder Woman's my next choice. Nine. Second last one is Hello High Water. Uh, David McKenzie's uh, neo-Western crime thriller, it says here on Wikipedia, really works well. Uh, again, it's got Chris Pine in it it's, and uh, Ben Foster playing two brothers who carry out a uh, um, couple of robberies at two branches of Texas Midland Bank and uh, chased by Marcus Hamilton a Texas Ranger played by Jeff Bridges and his partner Alberto Parker played by Gil Birmingham. And it's one of those movies kind of like The Asheville Jungle in that it's set in the times. Uh, in The Asheville Jungle, Dix Handley is um, affected by the Depression and the um, Howard brothers are affected by the downturns and rural poverty. So there's kind of sociological stuff in here and it really um, does work. It's got a great sense of place and a sense of the um, the landscapes of um, Texas, rural Texas. And it does, um, you know, it's one of those movies that's really satisfying and beautiful and also um, does talk about the desperation that comes with poverty and with um, economics being run from the top end rather than throughout society. And in that sense, it's going to be one of those movies that reflects our times to future generations in a more honest way 
than a lot of other films and a lot of um, news footage that we get from certain outlets do. Uh, it really um, is a movie that I'm going to have to pick up a copy of. Uh, I haven't yet, but I definitely want to pick up a copy of Hell or High Water because if I like a movie as much as I like this one, I definitely want to own a copy of it so it can't be taken away from me by some kind of capricious move by a streaming service. Nine. Number 10 is a 1946 film noir called The Locket, directed by John Brahm and starring Lorraine Day, Brian Ahern, Robert Mitchum and Jean Raymond. And it's about um, a woman who is a congenital liar, well, not congenital, but um, habitual liar, a kleptomaniac, and eventually she murders someone. And it's really um, an interesting film for its time in the fact that the engine of the movie is women, not men. Uh, Men uh, tend to be more victims than anything else, and it's not a large film. It's not particularly well-known, but it's got flashbacks within flashbacks, and it's deeper psychologically than a lot of films of its type. And it's one of those kind of little noir films that falls between the cracks unless you search really carefully for it. I think I first heard about this one on social media. In fact, it may have been on Facebook. Somebody, whoops, I just hit the mic. Somebody mentioned it and I tracked down a copy of it and I really do appreciate it. Uh, It's one that you really should see if you're a film noir fan, as many people who listen to the podcast are then The Locket's definitely one to check out because it's different and it's good and I like it. So anyway, that's about it for this time around and it's the last Paleocene of a podcast for 2017. A lot of changes in my life in this year, but in spite of that, I'm muddling through. Things are looking up for 2018. I want to try to ramp up my game with my creative outputs in this year and uh, upcoming year anyway, not this year. This year I haven't got too much time. But in the upcoming year I'm really looking forward to doing new and wonderful things. Hopefully I will. So anyway, thank you again for listening. Thank you to the Patreon subscribers, old and new. And there are some new ones who, wicked people that they are, wanted me to do the review of Star Wars The Last Jedi, which I've done now. And they've still got to pay me. Ha, ha, ha. Um, Anyway, um, look after yourselves over the holiday season. For some people, it's a marvellous time and they celebrate to hell. For other people, it's a more difficult time. And if it's a more difficult time for you and you're feeling totally shit and you're friending me on Facebook, just give me a nudge and I'll send you an animated GIF or a joke or even just an acknowledgement that you matter. So take care of yourselves. Um, don't eat or drink too much because it never ends well. It's either going to be a heart attack or a lawsuit. So just, you know, moderation in moderation. Uh, And I'll be back very soon with another Martian Driving podcast between Christmas and New Year and another Paleo Cinema podcast just after the ball drops in Times Square. So I'll see you guys later. And thanks again for listening the whole year. As I said, it's been... Uh, a year of ups and downs, but we'll get through it together. And to leave this, I've got Bobby Boris Pickett's Christmas song for you after I do the credits in the style of movie credits. And I will have to put the new Patreon subscribers onto those credits very, very soon. So I'll catch you guys later. Uh, So wait for the credits and then wait for the song. And here are the credits. Thank you to Tom, the focus puller, Sarah, the special effects technician, Ian, the caterer, Grant, the technicolor consultant, Claire, the script doctor, Gary, the prop master, Morris, our music director, Jan, our dialect coach, Armin, our key grip, Matt, our rattlesnake wrangler, Elaine, our scientific advisor, Julia, our casting director, Chris, the camera operator, Christopher the Gaffer, Miss Jane the Wardrobe Mistress, Tansy our Foley Artist, Alyssa our Location Scout, Mark our Set and Unit Director, Paul our Special Effects Makeup Special Makeup Effects Director, Tammy our Donut Wrangler, 
Tim, our New York Unit Director. Rabbi Steve, our Spiritual Advisor. Steve, our Monster FX Guy. Dylan, our Goat Wrangler. Eric, our Set Security Lead. Richard H., the Set Photographer. Mark D., Extra. David L., the Extra. Richard C., our Transportation Co-Captain. Carrie L., our Tasmanian Consultant. And Carrie C., our Accountant. We also have Sally, our Continuity Girl. And, of course, the other Sally, who is always helpful and encouraging and wonderful. So thank you very much to all of the Patreon subscribers. You too can be a Patreon subscriber by going to patreon.com slash paleocinema and donating as little as a dollar per month. Before Christmas, when all through the castle, my monsters were having a yuletide hassle. The tree was all trimmed in ghoulish things, like werewolf fangs and vampire wings. But they were up to no good. Didn't act like good monsters should. They found themselves a new prey. They planned to rob Santa's sleigh. They were making a list and checking it twice. Frankenstein wanted a shiny new trike. A new chain for Janusz, a brace for Igor's back. A speed shaver for Wolfman, a new cape for Drac. They were up to no good. Didn't act like good monsters should. They found themselves a new prey. They planned to rob Santa's sleigh. The mummy was to signal from the castle roof. At the very first sound of a reindeer hoof, as Santa slid down the chimney wall, the zombies were to make off with slain all. From beyond the moat, there arose such a clatter. I jumped to the window to see what was the matter. Like a bolt of lightning, it happened so quick. And there in our midst stood old Saint Nick. He began to dig down deep in his sack and came up with the traction for Igor's back. Drack caught his cape, Frankie's trike made him behave. Even Wolfman was happy, now he can shave. And all ended well. And Santa was really swell. No need to rob Santa's sack. Maybe next year he'll come back So the children everywhere were spared the grief Of losing their presents to a monster slave thief Now the monsters love Santa and say they'll behave And never again rob sleighs or graves Igor, what do you think of Santa now? Santa Ghoul! What was that he said as he drove out of sight? <laughs> Merry Christmas to all, and to all a good night. Jingle bells, jingle bells, jingle all the way. Oh, what fun it is to ride in a one-wolf open sleigh. Well, dashing through the snow, where is that reindeer with the red nose? On a rumblitzen, on dancer and vixen, 